Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that this day my words would uh, exalt Christ. I pray that you would help us to be attentive to your word. And I pray you would open our eyes to see your plans and purposes for this, your world, and to think clearly about what our role might be uh, in your great vision for your world. Uh, for Jesus' glory, I pray. Amen. Uh, so I actually wanted to start today by doing something a little bit, uh, a little bit different. Uh, I wanted to do a visualisation. I'm not going kind of all too kooky on you, but uh, uh, a bit of a visualisation. So I just want you to imagine something. Uh, so if it's useful for you, you might take a couple of deep breaths or close your eyes or, or whatever floats your boat, but a visualisation. Uh, I, I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, you're going along to a funeral of a loved one. Uh, you're driving to the chapel, uh, you park out the front in the car park, uh, you, you go inside the door. And as you head inside, you, you notice uh, the, the kind of flowers uh, positioned around the room. Uh, there's that soft background music that you often hear before funeral services uh, in those chapels. Uh, there's, a, there's a pile of orders of service there with photos of your loved one, uh, the usual things. Uh, you see the faces of family and friends, uh, and you, you feel they're mixed emotions, uh, that sense of loss, uh, that they're grieving someone that they, they love, uh, but also thankfulness that they've had the opportunity to share life with the, this person that you all love. But then something pretty odd happens. It's one of those uh, funerals with an open casket. You, you walk down the front, you look inside the coffin, and you come face to face with yourself. This is your funeral. All these people are here for you, to honour you, to express their love and appreciation for you. Uh, understandably, you, you're quite shocked by that. You take a seat and, and you look at the program and you, and you notice that there's going to be four speakers in the funeral. Uh, a member of your family, a friend, a colleague and a member of your church. And so you're sitting there with that program, you're thinking, uh, what would I like each of these people to say about me? How do you want them to describe you as a husband or wife or uh, father or mother or son or daughter or friend or, or colleague? How, how do you want these four people to describe you? What character traits do you want them to speak about? What contributions have you made? What, what, what were you passionate about? What, what values drove your life? What do you want this group of people, these four people, to remember about you? Coming back from that, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I took that uh, visualization from a book. It's written. It was written about 30 years ago, called "The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People." Uh, some of you might have heard of it. It's by again, a guy named uh, Stephen Covey. Uh, it's not a Christian book, but I, I reckon it's got a bunch of uh, good wisdom in it. Uh, and that visualization is from the start of uh, the chapter, which unpacks, unpacks his second habit. Right? His second habit of highly effective people uh, is that they begin with the end in mind. So he says, to begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that uh, you better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. So I guess I'm wondering, uh, what end do you have in mind for your life? That's why I started with that visualisation. Well, what's the destination you're aiming for? What, what do you think the purpose of your life is? Well, what's... What's your vision for your life? 
Uh, in today's passage, we see that Paul uh, is full of, of real joy. A couple of times he says, I rejoice. And one of the reasons for that is that his vision for his life is really clear. Very clear. Right, whatever happens in his life, whether imprisoned or free, whether life or death, his great vision is that everyone would be clear at his funeral, perhaps, that he has lived his life for Christ. That's what people would say about Paul, for, that he's lived his life for the advancement of the gospel, for the exaltation of Christ. He wants that to be beyond doubt, to be beyond doubt to everyone. And we see that vision of Paul's in three ways in this passage, right? They're there in the sermon outline. Uh, first, in verse 12, uh, we see that Paul rejoices because he knows that what has happened to him has advanced the gospel. So he says, look there in verse 12, uh, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Right? Notice he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters. Remember last week we saw that there's real love between Paul and the Philippians, that they're partners in the gospel. Right? So he wants to assure them that, that what's happened to him has, has served to advance the gospel, actually served to advance the gospel. Right? That, that word actually is only there because... Well, on the surface, what's happened to Paul might not seem like it's advanced the gospel. It might seem to be an obstacle to the gospel, a hindrance to the gospel. But Paul says, no, 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 you've got to understand. My dear brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Right? So, so the obvious, obvious question is, what's happened to Paul? Well, it'll become clear in a second that, and, uh, that Paul's uh, writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome. Uh, that was alluded to last week even. And he's in prison for preaching the gospel. Right, so how did he get there to this prison cell in Rome? Well, back in, in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul was uh, farewelling the elders in the church in Ephesus. And this is one of the things he said in, from verse 22, Acts 20, verse 22. He said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going up to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Once again, Paul's vision is crystal clear, isn't it? Right? That he would complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given him, to preach the good news of God's grace. So even though someone said to him, look, if you go up to Jerusalem, Paul, there's going to, you're going to, be, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be suffering, you're going to be thrown in prison. Oh, Paul, go, Paul goes anyway, right? because his vision is to preach the gospel. And so in Acts 21, when he arrives in Jerusalem, he, he meets with the church, uh, it's, all, it's all wonderful, it's warm, it's fuzzy, uh, wonderful family time, uh, uh, but it's not long before a fellow Jew brings a, a completely false accusation against him. So in the process, uh, Paul's nearly killed by a, a mob of Jewish fanatics. They're about to kill him when he's thrown into prison. And his court case is an absolute joke. Uh, he's mocked, he's insulted, uh, he's consistently misrepresented. Uh, it really is just one injustice after another. And yet Paul looks back on all of that and he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And so Paul's in prison in, in Jerusalem. Eventually he's taken from that prison and he's, uh, by boat he's going to be transferred to a, a prison in Rome. And what happens on the way? A, a massive storm comes up. Uh, the boat's taking on water. It's nearly destroyed. Uh, Paul's in, in the water. He's nearly dashed on the rocks. Eventually he's washed up on the shores of Malta. And uh, they get him from there to this prison cell in Rome. And so he's in prison in Rome. He knows that he's going to be there for at least two years 
awaiting trial. And it's in that context that he writes to his dear brothers and sisters, the Philippians, his partners in the gospel, the the Philippians who've been worried about him. They've heard about everything that's happened to Paul. They're really concerned. What's going to happen to the gospel? How's the gospel going to keep going out into the world if the, the great apostle to the Gentiles is in prison? What does Paul say? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Like, what is it that drives Paul to have this kind of perspective? Well, we saw last week, chapter 1, verse 6, Paul said to the Philippians, I'm confident of this, chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. As Paul looks back on everything that's happened to him, he remembers this truth, the truth that all of human history is headed to a particular point. It's not aimless. There's a great goal for the entire cosmos. It's the day of Christ Jesus. It's the day, as we'll see next week, when Christ will return in glory and everyone will confess that he is Lord. And Paul knows deeply and profoundly that that is the goal of everything that's happening. It's God's great vision for his world. And he knows that God rules over every part of human history, every detail. God is working towards that great end. How does God do that? How does God work all things towards this great end uh, when everything is brought under the Lordship of Christ? Well, it's through the proclamation, the advance of the gospel of Christ that declares that Christ is Lord. So that as many people as possible are glorifying Christ Jesus as Lord on the day he returns. Paul's got all of that in mind when he says, what's happened to me? God is using everything that's happened to me to advance the gospel towards this great day of Christ Jesus. Right? And that's interesting perhaps because uh, many of you might be familiar with uh, uh, the, what the, those who were called the new atheists, uh, maybe someone like Richard Dawkins, uh, who would tell us that there, there, that there isn't any purpose in the universe. There's no ultimate direction. So Dawkins says the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. There's no real meaning or direction or purpose in the universe, Dawkins is saying. So given that, lots of people say, well, we've just got to make up our own purpose. You've got to find your own sense of purpose so you can have freedom and meaning and joy in life. Kind of choose your own adventure. Well, one writer says, uh, there's not one big cosmic purpose for all. Uh, There's only the purpose we each give to our own lives. An individual purpose, an individual plot, like an individual novel, a book for every single person. That's not Christianity. Paul disagrees with that, doesn't he? There is a big purpose for the universe. And we can find our purpose not by writing our own book where we're the hero of the story. Look at me. It's all about me. The spotlight's on me. That's not how we find joy or freedom, no. We find joy and freedom by finding our place in the book of the cosmos that God's writing, where Christ is the hero of the story. Uh, There's been lots of talk recently about people uh, ending up on the wrong side of history. Uh, Stephen Fry was, was tweet, tweeting all about it the other night. Uh, it, it's particularly apparent in the, in the same-sex marriage debate. Right? That I, you might have heard this. This is how the argument goes. You know, everyone's legalising same-sex marriage, uh, at least all the kind of progressive and civilised countries. 
Uh, you can see where the world's going. So surely, like, this is the kicker, like surely you don't want to end up on the wrong side of history. But wouldn't that be embarrassing? Now, really, my, my comment here is not so much about same-sex marriage, but it's about the nature of history. Right? The people saying that don't really know where history is headed. But as Christians, we do know where history is headed. It's headed to the day of Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian, someone who professes and lives with Christ as Lord, uh, in the end, you will never end up on the wrong side of history. You can be assured that you'll be on the right side of history. So as Christians, we live our lives with this, this kind of great end in mind, the day of Christ Jesus our Lord, and in the meantime, we make all our decisions in light of that end. Right? Begin with the end in mind. So we ask ourselves, uh, does living in this way, does speaking in this way, does uh, behaving in this way, does voting in this way, does serving in this way, does, does everything in my life help me to put on display the Lordship of Christ? Not can I get away with this, but does it help me to display the Lordship of Christ? Does it advance the gospel of Christ? Will it help more and more people to come to know Christ as their Lord? That's the kind of questions Paul was asking. That's why he can rejoice even when he's in prison. Because he can see that what's happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel. And that's what matters. A second, in verses 13 to 18, Paul rejoices because he knows that what is happening to him is increasing proclamation of the gospel. As a result, Paul says, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Uh, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Uh, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, uh, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Uh, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Right, notice verse 13, Paul says, It's clear to everyone that he is in chains for Christ. Everyone knows that Paul is only in prison because he refused to stop proclaiming the gospel. It's the only reason he's in prison. And the reason they're clear on that is because Paul told them. He won't shut up about it. He sees his time in prison as an open door for the gospel, a great opportunity for the gospel. Uh, You could say, here it comes. You could say he had a captive audience. Oh, sorry. Uh, It's a funny little light moment there. Um, uh, there you go and so verse 13 uh, everyone knows Paul's in prison for proclaiming the gospel verse 14 Paul points out that uh, because of how he's dealt with being in prison you see that there his boldness in proclaiming the gospel what's happened most of the other believers in Rome are also becoming more bold well you can imagine this they've thought to themselves well if Paul can kind of boldly proclaim the gospel in prison surely I can do that out here I suppose encouraged because you can see that, that him being in prison has served to increase the number of people who are proclaiming the gospel. And now in verse 15, he clarifies that, that not everyone's preaching the gospel because they love him, right? That's, it's not all out of goodwill. Right? Some people are, are proclaiming the gospel out of envy, out of, out of selfish ambition. I don't know, who, who do you think those people are? It's probably other Christian leaders in Rome, sadly. You know, leaders who uh, resent the fact that Paul's taking some of the spotlight away from them. 
Or who does Paul think he is? Like, like we used to be the influential leaders in Rome. The, the popular preachers. Everyone thought we were it in the bits. And then Paul rocks up. He's, he's not even on a platform. He's just in a prison cell and he's taking all the attention. And so these leaders keep preaching, but they're preaching to be better than Paul, to have more followers than him. It's envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. Paul's kind of cutting in on their turf. I don't have lots of time to apply that, like, but this, this was a big deal for me. I like, started a church in this area. Like, well, What happens if... A church starts up the road and in six months they're two times as big as us. You know? How do I guard my heart against that? Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. Notice what Paul does. He doesn't rebuke these leaders. He doesn't use his kind of authority as apostle to kind of kick them out of the church. No, verse 18, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this I rejoice. That's what was most important for Paul, that that the gospel proclamation would increase. His great aim is that every decision he makes in his life would lead to the gospel bearing fruit. More people proclaiming the gospel, more people coming to know Christ. He puts every decision through that filter. If I decide to do this or this, will it promote the cause of the gospel or will it hinder it? Will it lead me and others to have more opportunities to proclaim the gospel? Will it help more people to hear and respond to the gospel? That's very different to my filter. I don't know about you. What's most important for Paul is not his fame or reputation or popularity or comfort. Even his life is secondary to whether Christ is preached or not. We'll see in a second. But if it would serve the cause of the gospel more, if more people would exalt Christ, come to know Christ, proclaim Christ, for Paul to lose his life tomorrow, he'd gladly embrace it. He rejoices because he knows that what is happening to him is increasing gospel proclamation. That's what life's about, Paul says. Third, in verses 18 to 26, he rejoices because he knows that what will happen to him will exalt Christ. He says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I'll in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, uh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So you can see how this passage ties together. Paul looks to the past, uh, he talks about his present, and now he's looking to the future. Uh, And as he looks to the future, uh, it's full of certainty and uncertainty. It's uncertain because like all of us, uh, Paul doesn't really know whether he's going to live or die. Now, of course, it's more acute for Paul because he's in prison. Like, But that's a reality we all live, don't we? None of us know whether we're going to live or die if we look to the future. But in verse 21, Paul does say, for for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What what does Paul mean by that? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Over in chapter 3, we'll look at this uh, in a couple of weeks' time, 
Uh, Paul shares a bit of his testimony. He talks about the moment when he first became a Christian. And in that moment, it's like he adds up everything he had before he became a Christian, the things that he gained, if you like, the things that gave him confidence that God would accept him. Uh, Things like his religious heritage, his ministry, his obedience to the law. Right? He added all those things up and he said, I count all of those things rubbish, absolutely nothing, uh, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, of gaining Christ, Paul says, of having Christ, of being united to Christ. But all those things are rubbish compared to gaining Christ. And what's clear in this passage, today's passage, is that Paul is that for Paul, gaining Christ isn't just some one-off event that happens when you become a Christian. It's an ongoing process, right? As you get to know Christ more and more, as you surrender more and more of your life to Christ, you're gaining Christ all the more. And that's why, in one sense, dying is something that Paul really looks forward to. But that's hard for us to understand. Right? But he sees death as the moment when he finally gets to go and be with Christ. He, he gets to gain Christ fully. Right? Since he became a Christian, all he's wanted is to know Christ more. And so death is that ultimate release. Why wouldn't he want to depart and be with Christ? To live is Christ. It's all about Christ. It's about surrendering to Christ, living for Christ, proclaiming Christ. And to die is gain. Of course it is. You're gaining Christ fully. But as Paul looks to the future, he's not sure whether he wants to live or die. On one level, he puts his cards on the table. He says, what shall I choose? Like he's confused. He's torn between the two. But he is pretty clear that if it was all about him, he'd much prefer to go and be with Christ. It's better by far, he says. But it's not all about him. He knows that. So look, verse 24, he says, I think it's more necessary for you for the Philippians and all the believers that he loves, that he remains in the body, that he doesn't die. In fact, in verses 25 and 26, uh, he does seem pretty convinced that that's God's will. He doesn't know absolutely for certain, because none of us know the future, but he does seem pretty convinced that it's the Lord's will that he would stay and encourage the church that they might boast in Christ all the more. Paul looks to the future and he is uncertain about some things. Uh, There are other things he's certain of. Have you a look at it in verse 19. Uh, he's certain that whatever, oops, excuse me, uh, whatever lies ahead, uh, whether life or death, it'll turn out for his deliverance. And now, uh, when Paul talks about deliverance, uh, there, I, I don't think he's talking about his uh, escape from prison or him getting out of prison, right? I, we've just said, I, I'm not sure he's sure of that. But he is sure about his ultimate deliverance, isn't he? His salvation, his release from the world. There will be a point when he will depart from this world and be with Christ. He's sure about that. He's sure about his ultimate salvation. And there's another thing he's sure of. He's certain. In verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. that, That verse is a bit confusing, I think, because we read the word hope, and we use the word hope, and we always, and we always think just kind of, that's pretty flimsy. It's wishful thinking, like, uh, yeah, you know, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope the traffic's not too bad. I hope Melbourne wins the premiership next year. You know, like, it's not exactly rock-solid hope. It, it's, it's flimsy. They're things we hope for, but they're not certain. But, but that's not hope in the Bible. But hope in the Bible is rock-solid. It's sure. It's certain. 
It's based on the, on the promises of God, and God's always faithful to his promises. It's based on the resurrection of Christ that really did happen in history. So hope in the Bible is sure and certain. And so here Paul's saying that as he heads towards his great hope, uh, his ultimate salvation, his deliverance, he's also certain. He, hope, he eagerly expects and hopes that whether he lives or dies, he will exalt Christ. Well, it's not about him. It's with God's help. Notice it's through the prayers of the Philippians, through God's provision of the Spirit, but he's confident, he's certain that he will exalt Christ, whether he lives or dies. That word exalt literally means to enlarge something, to magnify it, to to make it bigger. So as Paul faces the future, one thing he's absolutely certain of is that whatever happens, he wants to glorify Christ, to magnify him, to enlarge him, to, to lift him up. Uh, as, well, one commentator puts it like this. He says, uh, Paul sees that his task, uh, whatever the future holds, is not to, to carry a, a snapshot of Christ in his wallet. You know, there's snapshots you might have with your children or parents or something. Not, not to carry a snapshot of Christ in his wallet for occasional sharing with chosen people, uh, but to show an enlarged, life-size Christ to all who care to look. Imagine that. You're kind of carrying around one of those cardboard cutouts from the movie foyer. You know, this is Christ. Anyway, uh, to carry around a large, uh, life-size Christ to all uh, who care to look, a Christ displayed in his every dimension, a Christ who is magnified in his body. Right? Paul rejoices because he knows that whatever happens to him in the future, with God's help, he will exalt Christ. So let me bring you back to where we started with that visualisation of your funeral. I wonder at your funeral, what do you want people to be saying about you? The truth is that we all look to the future and it's uncertain. We live as if, oh, you know, life expectancy, I've probably got 50 or 60 years. But the reality is every breath we take is a gift from God. We don't know how much time we have. So I wonder at your funeral, what do you want people to be saying about you? About what shapes, not not just the overall vision for your life, but every decision you made along the way in light of that vision. See, at Paul's funeral, I reckon he would have wanted people to say something like this. He would have wanted people to say that his vision for life was dominated by Christ. You can feel it, can't you? He's consumed with Christ. He lived his life for the advance of the gospel of Christ. Whether he lived or died, his main aim was to see Christ exalted, to see him glorified, to see him magnified. His vision for life was dominated by Christ. Not some, you know, pocket kind of sharing photo of Christ. Massive Christ. Not Christ having authority over a few hours on a Sunday or maybe eight hours a week, but Christ having authority over everything. His whole life. I reckon Paul would have wanted people to say something like that as his funeral. And my aim today is pretty bold, but I've been praying this week that, uh, that we would be more and more increasingly convinced that, that that's what we'd want people to say at our funeral. That, people would, uh, that, that we as a church, as individuals, would treasure knowing Christ so much that we'd be willing to give up anything and everything. Right? To consider all things rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ to seeing the good news about Christ advance throughout his world. Now, some of you might think, well, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. 
I'm sure I want to do that. Like I'm worried that if I, if I give up so much for Christ, for, for the cause of the gospel, uh, somehow I'm going to miss out in life. Like the, the sacrifice is going to be too great. And that reminds me of a quote from David Livingston. Uh, you know those movies like Dr. Livingston, I presume? You know, Dr. David Livingston, he was the, the first uh, missionary to Africa. And uh, this is what he said. Uh, he said, people talk of the sacrifices I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Uh, but I say, away with that word sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger, now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing, he says, when compared with the glory which, we sh- which shall be revealed in us and for us. And then he says, I never made a sacrifice. Uh, The truth is, the more your heart uh, is kind of gripped by the great treasure of knowing Christ, as Paul says, the more you can say with Paul to live is Christ, to die is gain, uh, the more you'll be able to join him in saying, I never made a sacrifice. Now, of course, on one level you do. But it's nothing compared to the great treasure. You know, like the guy, uh, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. You're the man who discovers a great treasure in the field. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to keep the treasure. If you're, Jesus is saying, if you're not willing to give up everything for him, you just haven't really got what the treasure is yet. You haven't understood how great it is, how joyous it is. I never made a sacrifice. Right now, as Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, says, he's reflecting on Christ's love at the cross. He says, love so amazing, so divine, Demands, not not just what I can spare, but my soul, my life and my all. That's that's the kind of heart that drove Paul. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that this day you would impress upon us the, the brevity of life, that none of us know how long we have on this earth. I pray that you would impress upon us the the great end of all things that you have in mind for your world, that you're working all things towards the day of Christ Jesus when all things will will be brought under him as Lord. And I pray that increasingly we would live our lives in light of that end, consistently, living to see uh, the advance of the gospel, living to see gospel proclamation increase, uh, living to see Christ exalted, whether by life or by death. Please convince us deeply, Father, of the great treasure of knowing Christ and seeing his gospel advance uh, throughout the world, that more and more people would become a part of his kingdom. Uh, Impress this treasure into our hearts. Give us great joy in it, that we would be able to give up anything and everything for that cause and for him. Uh, That we'd be able to say with our brother, uh, Dr. Livingston, uh, that we never made a sacrifice. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.